And so as Pastor said, we've been, uh, as a family, trying to figure out, well, what's next? We have a change of mission, and what's going to happen now? And if you rewind back to November of uh, 2018, right here, I stood with Pastor Bill, and I stood with his brother, Pastor Nathaniel, right here, and committed to missions someday. That was five years ago. Uh, I was a, a master sergeant getting ready to go be a first sergeant, had a lot of military career left, and I knew at some point it would come to where a transition would happen uh, into the ministry. And so that day is quickly approaching, and I'm very thankful for the Lord and His faithfulness getting me and my family to this point. And so I, I wish my family could have been here today. Um, we are The passports for my kids had expired, so we couldn't make that happen in such a quick time because it was literally about three weeks ago we had a discussion, and then that day said, buy a plane ticket, and we're going to go over and have a visit. So uh, hopefully this summer we can get everybody over here. Uh, so it's a blessing to see um, some faces I knew, some faces I've never met before. Uh, let, me, uh, let me just set the uh, expectation management here. I preached right here on the first Sunday of December 2019. I've preached two other times since then, so, so we're kind of bookending it here. I know you'll be thankful to have your pastor back preaching much better than me uh, next week. Uh, so we've got a big task today. We're going we're gonna to go through an entire chapter. We're going to go through, uh, we're going to be at Luke chapter 14. We're just going to work our way through this chapter. So Luke 14. The emphasis is really going to be on the, the latter part of the chapter, but I think it's important to progress through the chapter uh, to, to really see some things that, that'll tie everything together in this second half of the chapter. Uh, but let's go ahead and just start in verse 1 of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. Verse 3, And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace, and he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this day. Please just be with us as we dig into your word, Lord. Uh, Please bless this time that we have with one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we see a couple of things right away from the character of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. We know that there's this tension with the Pharisees that they have with Jesus. This isn't the first time that they've kind of put him on the spot. They've kind of tempted him uh, into acting a certain way that they could exploit. We see this throughout the Gospels, and and here we are again in verse 1. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day. They watched him. And so, first to note, uh, Jesus shows up to this chief Pharisee's house where other Pharisees and and the lawyers would have been, and he shows there to provide a godly example. We see the fruits of the Spirit, and he's coming out of a place of love because even though these Pharisees will, will seek to crucify Jesus, he still loves them, and he still wants them to be reconciled and for them to acknowledge that he is God the Son in the flesh. 
And so he's there. He wants to change their hearts. He has patience with them, love with them. But this first audience we're going to see him interacting with is these Pharisees. And so I think it's interesting in verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a certain man before him which had dropsy. Why was this man there? Well, I think it's very intentional. They wanted to see what Jesus would do. Would Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath? This man, part of, part of this dropsy, they say, is, is a lot of swelling. It's a lot of swelling of the face throughout the body. And so it would be very clear to see that this man has a physical ailment that needed to be healed. And so in verse 3, it says, And Jesus answering spake, but the, the Pharisees didn't ask him a question. There was no question at this point. But Jesus could perceive in their hearts that they were up to something. And so he immediately goes into his answer through words, through actions, and it says, And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? He already knew why this man was dropsy, with dropsy was there. He probably normally wouldn't have been there with this crowd, but he was there. The chief Pharisee brought this man there. Somewhat tempting Jesus and to see if, if he would heal them. So in verse 4 it says, And they, they held their peace, and he took him, the man with dropsy, and healed him, and he let him go. So Jesus just heals him. Jesus heals him. And I think it's interesting that, that the man they chose to bring there had a very um, physical uh, and easy observable ailment that would have clearly been demonstrated through the healing. So this man who's, who's swollen is immediately not swollen. There's no question or not if he had been healed. They saw that right before their eyes. The healing was done. So I wonder, as Jesus met with these Pharisees, as Jesus is healing this man, there should have been a change in their heart. There should have been a change in their reaction to Jesus. Jesus was there. There's, there's undeniable, um, you can't walk away from seeing that not be changed in some way. So I just wonder how Jesus works through us, and as we interact with people, are they leaving changed because of us showing them the Son? There's got to be some change. You, you can't meet the Son and not be changed. There's got to be some change there. And ultimately, we want to see people submit themselves and be restored in that original relationship with God the Father who only happens through the Son. So in verse 5, it says, And answering them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? So the, the problem here is that the, the Pharisees wanted to equate working, which was not permitted under the law, to this healing, to providing aid. And, and there's, there's nothing in the law saying that you couldn't help something or someone. And so he uses this example of an animal of which they all would have said, yes, we would help this animal. There, we just wouldn't walk by. And he said, and they could not answer him again to these things because he did not break the law even though they wanted him to. They surely wanted that. And then he goes into this parable. We're going to skip that parable because we don't have a lot of time today. Um, so we're going to skip down 
to verses 16, but we needed to see Jesus interacting with these Pharisees, the first crowd or the first audience we're going to see in this chapter. And we see him go in there. We see him perform this miracle. He's healed. He's eating with them, but there's still no change. And so in verse 16, it says, Then said he unto them, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they were all with one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have brought a piece of ground, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. So now Jesus is going to go into this parable. He's healed this man. He's still eating with with the Pharisees and the lawyers. And he's going to go into this parable. Within the custom of the day, you know, now, now we've got calendars and we've got clocks and we've got reminders, but the custom of the day when you were going to have here this feast is you would have sent out an invitation. It would have gone out. The servant would have, have, have sent the word, and, and it would have been on January 16th, we're going to have this feast. Please be prepared to come. Let me know if you're going to come. And it doesn't say this here in the text, but it's certainly... Um, uh, what's the word? It's certainly, um, we need to take that away from the text, that they would have said yes. They would have given them an answer. We'll be there on January 16th. But there's no time yet. They didn't say January 16th at 1 o'clock. It's not what they did. They waited till the day of to let them know when they were going to come. So it went out. The servant went out. He told them all um, that it's now ready. It's this day. It's supper time, and things are ready, come. And now we're going to see some types of excuses. So we saw in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus met with these people. Jesus meets with us. Is there a heart change? How are we interacting with Jesus? And even today, us here, there's probably different categories. There's, there's probably some people who are maybe exploring Jesus. Maybe they haven't. They haven't believed in him yet. They haven't put their faith and trust in him yet, but they're exploring the idea. There are those who have yielded their life. I love that in the first song we sang, there was the word yielded, Jesus yielding to the Father. Well, we've yielded to Jesus. We've been saved. So we've got these different types of of experience that we are left with Jesus. And now he's in this parable, and we're going to get these excuses. And so in verse 18, it says, and they all with one consent began to make excuse. That one consent, they were all on the same page. We're not coming. We've got to find ways to get out of this. I've never done that, but these people clearly are. So we're going to see a couple of of different types of excuses. And 18, it says, and they with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go see it. I pray thee have me excused. That is just a ridiculous excuse in the day. No man, nobody would, would buy a piece of land without seeing it. He would have seen it. He would have uh, investigated it prior to purchasing it. So, so in, in this context, he's saying, oh, hey, I bought this land, and today, today I have to go see it so I can't make it. So he's just given this ridiculous 
excuse. And I wonder how many times in my life I let material things, um, things that may seem important to me, get in the way of serving the Lord. Get in my way. Because me and myself, I'm pretty good with allowing things to get into the way, but by the grace of God and his patience, his long-suffering, he helps me through that. So we get through this first excuse. And verse 19, he says, And another said, I have bought five yokes of, five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. So again, we've got a, a material excuse, and again, no man in first century Israel would have purchased these beasts of burden or, or, or these yoke of oxen without proving them first. So it's just a ridiculous excuse for not being there. Then we see it kind of change a little bit in verse 20. He, he moves on from material things, and he says, And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Cannot come. So now we have a relational issue. We have a relational issue, and Jesus is really going to uh, expand upon this relational issue coming up here uh, at the end of the chapter. But as we, as we think about application for us today, far removed from first century Israel, how easily do I or do we put relationships above the Lord? I mean, it's really easy, right? My, my, my wife, though she's not here with me right now, but it's, it's really easy being together with my wife. I can see her. We can, we can touch each other. We, we physically commune with each other day in and day out. It's easy to get distracted and, and not focus on really what I'm to do with my relationship with the Lord. So we see these excuses. And really, these, these excuses are just, you could roll that all up together, and that's just Israel's excuse. It's, it's, it's Israel's way of saying, you know, the king is not here. I don't really need to come to this banquet. But it's got to get filled. And so, in verse 21, is so that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. So we have an invitation. We could look at this invitation to the Pharisees. They didn't want to take that invitation. They initially accepted it, but when it came down, down to it, they didn't take it. So the invitation is going to go to somewhere. There's not going to be an empty banquet. So the servant goes out and he finds all of these other types of people, the types of people in this society that were not the leaders of the society, not the, the respected and the renowned, but the marginalized. And it's a great example, uh, if we want to apply this to us, of of the Gentiles being allowed to come into the banquet. And I'm glad that we have a God that's allowed the Gentiles to come into the banquet because I'm very thankful that someday there's going to be uh, the, 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 what's the word for it? The marriage feast of the Lamb. 
Yes, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be an actual feast someday, and I'm glad I have an invitation. And so we see in verse 22, it says, And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is still room. It's not full yet. We still have a job to bring people to the banquet. There's still invitations to be sent out. There's still invitations to be accepted. There's still seats that are empty. Let's go get them, and let's bring them into this room. And the Lord said unto the servant, in verse 23, go out into the... Oh, we already passed it, I'm sorry. So in verse 24, for I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste my supper. So that's interesting. In verse 24, he says that. If you look back with me real quick in verse 15, one of these Pharisees said, and when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. I wonder how many of those men are going to eat bread in the kingdom of God with Jesus our Savior. I just wonder how many. So now we're going to shift. So we kind of laid that foundation. We have our meeting with, with Jesus. We have our meeting with the Christ, God's anointed. We have our meeting with the Messiah. There's an invitation sent. We have to make the decision whether or not we're going to accept that invitation. And each one of us has to do that for ourselves. And so now we're going to go from making or receiving the invitation to what do we do with that invitation? What's the action? So in verse 25, we see a change. He was in this home of this chief Pharisee. He's, he's eating with them. And now in verse 25, we have a crowd. And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and he said unto them. So one, there's more to it than just accepting an invitation. We got to move past that accepting of the invitation. And Jesus wants to be active participants in his ministry. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Bill was preaching and was talking about this, this submissive, sub, uh, submissive or, or a passive, rather, a passive way we approach our relationship with God, and it's got to be more active. God wants us to be active. He just doesn't want us to kind of work our way through this life. No, he wants us. And isn't that just amazing that he would even allow us to be a part of his redemption and restoration plan? Us? I think that is just so cool that he gives us, whether, whether it's being called into the ministry, whether it's just serving with the teenagers whether it's being with the children, whatever it is, witnessing to somebody, he's called us to have an active role in his ministry. So we got to continuously ask ourselves, well, where are we in that process? So he says in verse 26, he says, If any man come to me and hate me not, his, hate not his father and mother and wife and children, and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So we're going to see in, the, in these last, uh, this, this last remaining of this chapter, we're going to see three cannots, three disqualifiers, three ways that you cannot be a disciple. We've got to get around that. It's really interesting here that, that the first one Jesus is talking about, hate, right? So we've got to deal with this hate. Like what, what is Jesus talking about here, this hate language? This, this, is, this is not what he, he had taught previously. This is kind of a, a different type of language we're using. 
And so if we look at it first, we're seeing this hyperbolic language from Jesus. And I've got the, the definition from dictionary.com. It says, hyperbole defined as obvious and intentional exaggeration to an extravagant statement or figure of speech not intended to be taken literally. And an example that they use at dictionary.com is to wait and eternity. So we see this hyperbolic language that Jesus is using. And, and hyperbolic language isn't a new thing. You guys have been going through the book of Matthew. In, in, uh, in Matthew 5.29, Jesus says, And if thy right eye offended thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not only the whole body should be cast into hell. I don't think there was too many first century Christian Jews walking around with only one eye or one hand, but if they would have taken this literally, there would have been a lot of them, right? There'd be a lot of, a lot of us today here too. I'd probably only have one eye and, and whatnot, but we see this hyperbolic language, right? Did, did Jesus really want anybody to cut their eye out? No, he wanted a heart change. He wanted their heart to change, and he wanted them to be able to identify those things that are pulling away from them glorifying him to the distractions of this world, to the things that are not profitable. So when we deal with this word hate, he, he doesn't use it in such a sense of, of literal hate, but there's got to be some level of where we place our love relationally. You know, we have this, this horizontal relationship, the horizontal relationship with the Lord and with us, and then we've got these other type of, of uh, well, vertical relationship. You guys know what I meant there, right? And then we've got these horizontal relationships. Thank you for your grace. I appreciate that. With the relationships around us, with our spouses, with our children and, and our fathers and our mothers, with our friends, we have all these different types of relationships. And Jesus immediately is going to place this disqualifier that these other types of relationships cannot be higher, cannot be higher than the relationship you have with me. Because ultimately, at some point in time, these horizontal relationships we have, there's, there's going to be some form of failure there. There's going to be some form of disappointment there. There's going to be some form of hurt there. We ne- we're not going to walk away from this life with these relationships we have unscathed. But that's not the case with our relationship with the Lord. We can always trust in the Lord. We know that the Lord loves us purely in a way that we can't love others on this side of heaven. And so we have to get through this disqualifier immediately that we have to put Jesus first. But at the same time, it's not we put Jesus first and my spouse second. It's Jesus is here and then my spouse will be here. Because if I can love Jesus more, then guess what? I can love my spouse more. If I can love Jesus more, then that relationship flows through me and I can love my children more. See, Jesus doesn't want us to hate others. He wants us to love them better, and the way to do that is through him. If we look at the harmony of the Gospels, going back to Matthew in chapter 10, uh, 37 and 38, it, it's, it's Matthew's recollection of exactly what Luke is writing here. But he says, he that loveth the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth the son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Matthew and and Luke are writing the same thing in two different ways, using 
different language, but the point is the same. And in fact, in John 13, 35, Jesus said, By all this, men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have Lee, if you have love one to another. Love is 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 key here. And the way that this word hate is being used is to make this hyperbolic point. And I think that's important because depending on where you're at in your walk, some of us might be able to read that and clearly get that point right away where others might not. So we got to remember that, that we have to help people work through these things because sometimes the words in God's perfect and preserved word can be difficult to work through. And I just am so thankful that the Lord has put people in my life to help me work through that and that the Lord is patient and that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of me to also work through those things. So as we keep going, uh, at the end of verse 26, he says, he cannot be my disciple. Now that's kind of a scary sentence there. Cannot be my disciple. I think that would be shocking to hear it that day. If we think, if we were to make a list of those who were in that crowd, because the crowds followed Jesus, there's several types of people who came to meet him there, right? There were those who just wanted to be healed, right? Physical ailment, they, they wanted to be healed. There are those who were probably skeptic or those who were thoroughly against what he was proclaiming, who he was proclaiming to be, what he was saying. There were those who were probably interested in hearing it. And then we have those who were his disciples. And really those who would become his disciples. In verse 27, he says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. So we have the second disqualifier. Those who do not bear his cross. Your own cross. Your cross might look different in the way it manifests in in this life. But there is a cross to bear. Jesus was on his way, and ultimately he would be on the cross. We talked about that a little bit this morning with the cup. He personalizes it. Now, we're kind of removed from this idea of the cross in a sense and how it affected first century Jews from a very personal and cultural standpoint. So there's some things about the cross that we don't immediately think about today. And some of those cultural implications would have been, one, you had to carry your cross from one place to the place where your execution would ultimately occur. You had to carry it, at least a portion of it, maybe not the whole thing, but you were carrying it. Two, there was 100 certainty that you were going to die. Physical death was going to happen. And three, you weren't coming back. Now, our relationship with Jesus is is very similar to that, but through life, through life. So really what Jesus is getting after here is, is he wants all of our obedience. He wants all of our allegiance. He doesn't want half of us in, half of us out. And, and as we go through this life of sanctification, and as we grow and as we become more obedient, 
we work through that. But he's telling them, if you don't bear your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Another way we can kind of look this from an application standpoint uh, for today is, am I dying to myself daily? What do I need to die to? What am I allowing come into my life or the way that I'm living do I just need to put to death? That's a question I think we need to continually ask ourselves. And a a one-year Christian, a one-year born-again believer, is going to have different things from the 20-year believer, but at 20 years, we're still not perfected. We're still sinful. We still got to find these things and put them to death. So if we want to be a disciple, we have to be cross-bearers. Verse 28, he's going to give two examples here. We'll move through these quickly. Um, But he's going to give two examples that are going to help really solidify the point he's making here. And in verse 28, he says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it, begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So immediately we can see that there is a cost to being a disciple. And we have to look at what those costs are. We have to ask ourselves, can I afford to follow Christ? Well, really, we should be asking ourselves, can we uh, afford not to follow Christ? And so there's a, a link, an obvious link to counting the cost and finishing what one starts. But we're going to see between this example and this king going to battle that Jesus' kingdom is really kind of like building and battle in the sense that both usually cost more than we initially assess. We've been doing a lot of, of home renovation to our house, and I'll come up with a project, and I think it's going to cost about this much and only two trips to Lowe's, and then I end up like way up here. Right, and it drives my wife my wife nuts because she's very good with the budget. She's very good with time management, and when these things happen and the budget goes up and the time goes up, it's it's quite frustrating. In thirty one, it says, "Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and continueth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand, or else while the other is yet." A great way off, he sendeth an, an ambassage and desireth content, uh, conditions of peace. So just quickly moving through this, we don't have a lot of time left. We have a builder and we have a king. And the builder has a choice to make. The king has to make a decision. We could see that this builder is kind of like a, a picture coming to Jesus and the king is a picture of us following Jesus. It's a picture of discipleship. We see wisdom in the choice of the builder, but we also see wisdom in the assessment of the king. And so it's very intentional that Jesus used these two examples for what he's getting at with who can and cannot be his disciple. And so in verse 33, it says, So likewise, whoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We get the third disqualifier here. The third disqualifier. 
not two, but three. When you see this word forsaketh, we get this, this very simple idea from, from the Greek to say goodbye to it. As, as I left five years ago, I said goodbye to my friend here. At the hotel on post, he helped us get everything into the bus, and we were gone. It was a simple goodbye, and we were gone. There, there, there wasn't a drawn-out process. It just happened. But with the sin, with the things that would distract us in this life, the things that would disqualify us from being disciple, we don't approach it that way. We want to draw it out. We want to rationalize it. But here we're just called to simply say goodbye to it and then move on. And so if we want to be a disciple, we've got to forsake not all that he hath. And so quickly we'll finish up with verse 34 and verse 35. It says, salt is good, but if the salt have lost its flavor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so we've worked through our meeting with Jesus. We worked through the invitation from Jesus. We're working through our action to that invitation whether we take it or not, and if we take it, what do we do with it? And now we get to this whole, this whole salt idea. Where's this coming from? That has nothing to do with building your battle. Why do, we have, why do we have salt? Why are we talking about salt? Well, salt has a very specific purpose. And, and I get it. We're called to be salt and light, and we can make that spiritual application. But from a very simple and pragmatic approach, Salt has a purpose. Salt is to be salty. If it's not, what is it good for? You get rid of it. You cast it out. We don't need salt that has no purpose. This morning, pastor was out. He had his bucket, and he was going to put salt in the front walkway so nobody slipped on the ice when they came here, and it did nothing. It was useless. It had a purpose, and it didn't work, so he had to get new salt, and he throwed it out, and it immediately was working. And I thought, praise the Lord that we could see such a simple application right before we came to this text. I just thought that was wonderful. So where are we with our saltiness? Are we being useful for the kingdom? Are we being what God wanted us to do on this side of eternity? And so we're challenged by that. We're challenged by that. And now two quick scenarios that we can see from this as we go forth to make disciples for Christ is we kind of see two scenarios. And this is what this saltiness kind of makes me think of. And the the first scenario is that when we're going out to, to win souls for Christ, doing our part, the Holy Spirit, doing the Holy Spirit's part, is it's so easy for us to communicate that or we often hear Got to get your life right first before you come to Christ. No, it's never going to happen. It's not. Because the only way that your life can become right is when Jesus comes into your life. If we try to wait to get to that point, it's never going to happen. And second, there's going to be struggles once that change occurs. Once you submit your life, you're still going to have struggles. So that's when the discipleship comes in and we work through those things as we work to glorify God. And so in closing, 
in closing, uh, it is kind of difficult to hear you cannot be my disciple. And I think in this world, there's too many people who, who don't submit. They're, they're not born again. And we're, we're not necessarily being helpful in that process. But Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And in Luke 9, 61, he says, And another also, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid farewell, which are at my home in my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So those two verses, to wrap that up into meeting with Jesus, getting the invitation, accepting it and putting it into action, is we can't look back. We need to keep moving forward for the kingdom of God because someday that kingdom is going to be made sight and that faith will be made sight. Thank you for letting me come here today, especially in this exciting time for my family as we're putting our hands on the plow and we're not wanting to look back at necessarily where we're coming from, but we want to look to where the Lord is leading us and to glorify him. So I know you're all looking forward for Pastor being here next week and to get some good solid preaching from from Pastor Bill, but thank you for allowing me to come here today.